Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. I'm your host, Anne Foster. I have a bit of a frog in my throat at the moment, and I hope that you that doesn't affect your listening experience. I'm going to try and drink lots of tea, and we'll all get through this together because I need to tell you this story, and here we all are. So this week we're doing, I'm pretty sure, the first ever Vulgar History uh, trip on this international season, aka the season that just won't quit because I keep finding stories to tell. We're taking our first trip together to East Asia. We have been, I'm like very aware of the fact that we've been lingering in this international season a lot in Western Europe lately. So we're pivoting. There's going to be a bit more Europe coming up, but we're also going to be doing some more stories set in Asia. And we're starting with this one. And this is, so this is Korean history, which is not something I knew anything about until I started researching this podcast episode. And so I really want to thank uh, some people who helped answer some really basic questions I had. So for instance, Titsut Brigade member Veronica, who helped me with her experience from when she lived in South Korea, but also with recordings of some pronunciation. Anything I pronounce badly is all on me. She went above and beyond to help me understand how to pronounce some of these names. Um, my friend Unbog, who wanted to emphasize or wanted me to emphasize she's not a historian, she's not an expert, just kind of off the top of her head as a person who grew up in South Korea. She just sort of told me kind of what her impression was of of this figure talking about Queen Min and how she kind of saw her fitting into contemporary Korean society. And also special thanks to a friend of the podcast and sometimes guest on the podcast, Lana Wood Johnson, who first of all suggested this person and second of all helped me out with some understanding history. And she also was right there suggesting some K-dramas for me to watch to help me understand it better. I did watch a movie called The Sword with No Name, which I might talk about at some points during this. Queen Min is definitely a main character in that movie. Um, There's also some stuff that's not quite accurate, which is not a problem to me. So there's more research things than in some other weeks because that I could find there was no English language biography of Queen Min for me to refer to. So I was just kind of piecing together smaller, shorter pieces from other sources. I'm not going to list them all here out loud because that would take a long time, but they're all in the show notes. And the main 
main resources were the Oxford Encyclopedia of Women in World History, the Wikipedia page, an article from Korea Times, and a resource book from the Philadelphia Museum, which had an exhibit of Choson-era artifacts and had these kind of resources for classes who were taking their students there. And it was really at a level I appreciated of just like really explaining stuff that people might not know. Oh, and then also also uh, curriculum materials from the koreasociety.org. Similar thing. Lesson plans for school children. I'm always happy to find things written for somebody who maybe doesn't know anything about a subject because I really was, I learned a lot preparing this episode. And so I really hope I do justice to this figure. I know that there are some listeners in South Korea, other listeners who are more familiar than me about uh, Korean history. Anyway, so I'm going to do my best to pronounce things. Anything that I mispronounce or misrepresent is my own mistake and does not reflect on the helpful people who really tried to help me to prepare this because I really want to make this international season like truly reflect, if not every country that there's a listener listening to this from, but at least the different, all the quadrants of the world. And so we're getting into Asia. Here we go. It's a great story. I couldn't not do it. And we're going to start with some background information because I did not know. I don't think I knew really anything about the history of Korea, which is embarrassing. But now I know some stuff. And I will just explain to you the things that I also learned because it's really like everywhere, like to really set the place and the time and the culture helps to understand how this woman, how her story plays out and how people reacted to her and how she's remembered now. I do also think what I've gleaned is that I think Queen Min, who is the person we're talking about, is a controversial figure in a similar way to like how Malanzine is a controversial figure to the culture from which they are from. So she is remembered fondly by some people and like kind of not fondly by other people. So I'm just going to try to tell the story the way that it hits me as like a basic white lady from Canada. And here we go. The story takes place on the peninsula in East, I guess, Southeast Asia that we now know as like Korea. But during the era we're looking at, which is the late 19th century, this peninsula was known as the Chosan Kingdom. And I'm going to refer to this place as Chosan or the Chosan Kingdom because that's what it was called when the story took place. And from what I've been reading, English language sources tend to go back and forth, calling it one or the other, the kingdom or just Chosan. And yeah, this is similar to what I've done in other episodes. So like in the Malanzine episode, we refer to the land where she lived as the Machika Empire because that's what it would have been thought of by her and the people who live there. Or like in the Njinga episode, we refer to that land as Ndongo, even though it's today kind of kind of where modern day Angola is. I'm just trying to use the words people would have used in the era in which they lived, which is also why I'm calling the main character in the story, Queen Min, but we'll get to that in a minute. So Chosan Kingdom. I'm sure lots of you know so much about this because there's so many um, K-dramas and Korean movies and books set in this era because it was like a 500-year period of time, and it's a great place to set stories. So the Chosan Kingdom 
It's also, that's also the name of the dynasty, like the family who's in charge of it. And so this dynasty began, the Chosun dynasty, in 1392. It lasted until the late 19th century, effectively. Um, so a period of around 500 years. So one dynasty ruling the kingdom for 500 years is one of the longest lasting royal dynasties anywhere in the world, everywhere in world history ever, like to compare to a history that I know a bit better and you might also, England. So between 1392 and 1900 in England, they went from the Plantagenets to the Yorks, to the Tudors, to the Stuarts, to the Hanovers, to the Windsors. All of these were mostly violent shifts of, of monarchs changing dynasties. And it often was because somebody didn't have a son who survived. And so they had to look for a relative somewhere else and the relatives would argue. And the reason, a reason, why the Chosun dynasty continued for 500 years was because unlike in England, in the Chosun dynasty, if the king died without a male heir, they could, they had the option to adopt a child and say that was now the adopted sibling of the dead king. And so the dynasty would continue through kind of adoption means. And this is going to happen twice in this story. And part of what happens when that happens is that the, um, the parents of the new king may likely still be around and they're probably going to be some sort of influential family and they're going to probably have a point of view of their own and that's going to be part of what happens here so yeah the other thing about having a dynasty this lengthy like when they're that solidly in place it's hard to uh, usurp them because they're so powerful and they've been powerful for so long so uh, i think Another thing to bear in mind about the history of Chosan is that other countries saw them as backwards because they because they hadn't been violently changing dynasties over and over again because they kind of had a consistent culture. But wearing the same clothes and eating the same food for 500 years doesn't make a place backwards. Like Europe, everything we've been looking at, you know, like England, but also France and um, Germany and Italy and Sweden, and all of these places, like they were not stable. Like countries were cons over this 500 year period, like they were conquering each other and taking each other over. And so Europe kind of took all these toxic qualities around the globe and just thought, because that's what Europe was like, that was the best way that anyone could be. But that's not true. And they also, Europe, as they were going around, conquering and colonizing were sort of destabilizing everything in their path un under the assumption that the places that they were taking over were somehow inferior. Not true. It's just different. So that being said, like there was still massive poverty and unequal distribution of wealth in Chosan, but not, I don't think, particularly better or worse than in any European country. It's just this place happened to have a really consistent dynasty which allowed it to develop like the kingdom in a different way from a lot of other places so like one of the things you think about if you imagine a country or a kingdom that's been under the same rule for 500 years it's like oh but is it are they sort of like especially because we're going to talk about they um really kept to did their best to keep to themselves without really any natural or national natural borders but um, so they were, they were certainly influenced by, especially by the Chinese. But if you have your own really stable, like 
consistent, I mean, heterostable culture, um, and you're not doing super a lot of trade with other cultures, it's like, oh, is this like a civilization that's like kind of frozen in amber? Is it like, if you imagine if it's 1900 and you suddenly meet somebody who's been living like it was England in 1392, you'd be like, oh, like your language is different. Um, you don't know about electricity or whatever, like the printing press. But I mean, things still advanced in Chosan. Um, most of the Western technological advances that happened during this era were made by invading other people and kind of stealing their ideas. But things were going on in Chosan. Technological advances were coming slowly, but they were still coming. So I really don't want to leave you with any sort of impression that this is any sort of backwards place. It's just a really different cultural context from what we've been looking at, especially lately in Europe. So yeah, so they didn't have natural borders. Like they weren't surrounded by, they weren't an island. They were a peninsula. They were attached to the mainland. They didn't have mountains all around, like how um, in the Catalina de Rosa episode, we talked about how Basque country kind of similarly did their own thing for centuries because they had mountains around them. Chosan was like slash where Korea is. It's like right between China and Japan. And so was like invaded by one or the other or both over these 500 years. But or comma and they had their own culture that had some influences from the other cultures that were around them. But um, they were very proud of their culture. It was a very specific culture, and this culture included a highly regimented social structure, which is really important to, to talk about, because this social structure really affected the life of Queen Min and how she was seen, and also how she, I think, continues to be seen as a Korean woman. So we're still in the like backstory stuff, but I hope you're still here along with me learning things, or if you already know this stuff, I hope you're, I hope I'm relaying this. Um, correctly. So the era before the Chosun dynasty was the Koryo dynasty. And during that era, uh, women had more independence and power than they would later in the Chosun era. We've talked about this in the podcast before, but I think it bears repeating that women's rights are sometimes kind of misinterpreted as being like slowly getting better for everybody since like ancient Roman times. But in fact, Women's rights have gotten better and worse and better and worse in every country, like since recorded history. Like we've talked about places where it was okay to have like a woman be monarch, like Ethelfled or something. And then we've talked about places where it's just like, this is terrible. We can never let a woman be in charge again, like Fred again. Like it's not just an upward trajectory. So, in fact, in this peninsula, so in the Koryo dynasty, women had more independence. And then the Joseon came in and women got less. Um, power and independence. So after the Joseon dynasty took over, women's status and visibility went on the decline. And this was in part from a shift from a matrilineal to a patrilineal structure of kinship and identity. So just a very patriarchal structure. Here's an example. So during the Koryo dynasty, newly married couples used to live with the bride's family, which offered numerous advantages for the women, including economic advantage, like a woman could safeguard her share of the inheritance she shared equally with her male siblings. In the Chosun dynasty, because of the establishment of a patrilineal line, like only like father to son, and that was it, like how, like the male heir was crucial. This eroded women's rights and privileges. It changed the 
residential arrangements to this rigid rule of primogeniture. So the eldest son was the principal heir. So no longer were you sharing the inheritance among all siblings, like even among all male siblings. Like, so women didn't have that access to money. And as we've seen in so many stories, like if you don't have your own independent money, then you're dependent on men all the time. And that really affects your life. So why, why did this change occur? So largely because of the uh, spiritual philosophy of the Joseon kingdom. So the Joseon kingdom was a neo-Confucian patriarchal culture. We're going to break down most of those words. So Confucianism is um, developed from the ancient Chinese traditions codified by Confucius, a person who lived uh, like... 800 years before this all happened. He was a Chinese philosopher. Confucianism spread to Korea, Vietnam, and Japan. And Confucianism is a system of ethical rules designed to inspire and preserve the good management of family and society. So under Confucianism, modesty, respect for one's parents and ancestors, frugality, pursuit of knowledge, and proper etiquette were highly valued. And this imposed a strict division of gender people to prevent adultery and other sexual misconducts. So there was just a lot of, and I think these are all documented laws. So like, I don't know, I'm trying to compare it to something with which I am more familiar. So like Victorian England or something, or if you think about like Regency era England, like in Bridgerton, where it's just like, this is like the high class and this is the low class and this is the man and this is the woman. And like, no one can ever change from the role that they are given. And in Chosan era, it was a similar thing, I would say, maybe a bit more strict because this had been the, the rules for much longer. So uh, men and women were required to occupy different roles and spaces, even in their own households. So men and women lived separately, even in their own house. So men's living quarters consisted of several rooms, including a place to study, a bedroom, and a living room. Women and children resided in rooms sheltered in the innermost section of the household. And I didn't come across anything suggesting any sort of um, non-binary gender understanding. So I think it was very much just like men, women, that is our understanding of gender. Everything is like very balanced in that way. Um, there's kind of, it's like you're either an important person or you're an unimportant person. Either you're a man or you're a woman. And one is always better than the other one. It's, it's a very binary. <laughs> Everything is a binary. So yeah, so Chosun Dynasty implemented a legal system which provided a written record of laws that enforced strict regulations on the activities of women by repressing physical freedom. So women were forbidden from horseback riding, playing games, and attending outdoor parties. If you defied this, the punishment was 100 lashes. And so the way that women were confined and not allowed to do stuff uh, signifies the complete control that Joseon men held over women's lives. The only acceptable aspiration for a woman in this era was to marry and produce children, specifically a son. Daughters were referred to as robber women because their dowry took away from their family's wealth. Married daughters were known as, like, a uh, word meaning one who left the household and became a stranger. So it's a uh, very, that's the society we're looking at. So when a woman was married, she was expected to be faithful, loving, and subservient to her husband, and also fertile and to bear male heirs. 
after marriage, a woman would be referred to as um, the wife of or the mother of losing her individual identity and becoming the full property of a man. And this is why we don't know the name, um, like the given name of the woman we're going to be talking about. But again, we'll get to that. Yeah. So women were viewed as an extension of their husband or their son. If a husband felt that his wife had committed one of the seven evils, which included disobedience to parents-in-law, failure to bear a son, adultery, jealousy, hereditary disease, talkativeness, and larceny, he could easily divorce her. There was no uh, need for any evidence. A man's word was powerful enough to ruin a woman. And once divorced, she was left to destitution or to death by suicide. Therefore, marriage was a respectable woman's only option. Widowhood was extremely unfavorable. Uh, widows are treated even more poorly than unmarried daughters because unmarried daughters at least had the option of making a match. Uh, widows were discouraged from remarrying just by peer pressure. If she married again, um, she was looked down upon by her peers. As an incentive to remain single, the government awarded chaste widows with land grants. They also, in 1477, there was the anti-remarriage law, which discouraged women from remarrying by restricting their sons from public service jobs. So if they remarried, then that affected also their beloved sons. Widows were, in fact, given a special knife for suicide. And those who ended their lives were viewed as admirable because they were the epitome of, of uh, faithfulness. Chastity was considered one of the most desirable female traits. A woman's abstinence was looked upon as more valuable than her life. I want to just like re-emphasize that I'm just kind of like, here's what things were like in Choson era in this kingdom. Um, I don't think I've ever talked in this in depth about like, here's what things were like in Tudor era England. But like, I really don't want to be doing anything other than just saying like, here's what the laws were. Here's what society was like. I'm not putting any sort of like moral judgment on it, saying that this is any better or any worse than any other country or kingdom at this exact same point in time. But I found all these details and it really, really, really is going to help you understand um, when we get to Queen Min's story, how she was seen and how what she did was so revolutionary. So Joseon women could not hold official government positions. They were not expected to be educated at the same level as men. For instance, women were not taught to read and write in Chinese, which was used for official court documents as well as poetry and literature. But instead, women were educated in Confucian ideals of proper behavior, moral conduct, proper speech, proper appearance, and womanly tasks. So the purpose of education for women was to instill the ideals of the male-oriented society and to motivate them for the tasks of married life. So just putting yourself in the point of view of someone, if this is the only world you've ever known and this is how you're raised, like it's the same anywhere, really. Like if you don't know that there's more stuff that you could be doing, then why would you think of doing other things? By the age of seven, girls could no longer associate with boys or men. They were more and more confined to the inner quarters of the house where they received instruction in domestic duties from their mothers and grandmothers. This is a quote from Martina Deutschler's book, The Confucian Transformation of Korea. In cosmological terms, heaven, yang, dominates earth, yin, and correspondingly male has precedence over female. 
the clear hierarchical order between the sexes is thus cosmologically sanctioned and is imperative for the proper functioning of the human order. This order can be preserved only when human passions are kept in check. And in addition to strict gender roles, there's also an equally strict class system. And I forget if I wrote this down, but I did want to mention also that because men and women could never coexist. So like a male doctor could never tend to a female patient. So female, I think, servants would kind of serve as midwives and they would help women who are um, having medical issues. That was kind of like, not that it was a way to educate women necessarily, but it's uh, a role that some women would have. And I was going to talk about this later, but I'll talk about this now. So there is an author whose books I've been reading called June Her. She writes young adult historical mysteries that are set in various parts of the Chosun dynasty. Her first book, I'm just looking up the title. The first book is called The Silence of Bones. So it's about a 16-year-old girl who is a servant and they're murder mysteries. They're like young adult historical murder mysteries set in the Chosun kingdom. So in The Silence of Bones, for instance, she's a servant who's assigned to help the um, investigators because there's a, a woman has been murdered and they can't handle even the corpse of a woman. Like they need a servant to do that. So anyway, if you want to read books set in Chosun era, which was another way I've been trying to kind of learn more about this era. And since I finished my research and I'm just reading them because they're good books. So The Sounds of the Bones, her other books are The Forest of Stolen Girls and then The Red Palace. Anyway, they're all about teenage girls in Chosun era solving murder mysteries. And they're really good. So we're moving on to the class system. So again, Confucian principles. It's similar, again, just in the like hierarchy to when we talked about in um, the Rani Dida episode about how Kashmir or how their society worked there. So it's a caste system with the king at the top of the pyramid. And then the upper class were called the Yangban. And then there was a small middle class of government employees known as Chungin. And then the bulk of the population, um, peasants, laborers, fishermen, were classified as sangmen. And it's not just like, hey, here's this, how the world works, let's get on with it. There were riots from the like, lower class people because of the corruption of bureaucrats, um, heavy taxes, and things like that. So in theory, any man could become yangban, like the upper class, by passing an examination, but it cost time and money to study for the required exams. So, I mean, there wasn't that much upward mobility. The lowborn and enslaved people were at the even further down on the pyramid. And enslaved people became enslaved by birth, like if their parents were enslaved, as well as a form of legal punishment. During times of famine, the people who were like one step up, the sagmen, would sometimes sell themselves into slavery in order to survive. So, I'm describing the way that this system worked, but it's not like, here we go and it works and everything's great. It's like, no, but this is how it theoretically was supposed to work. And please note, it's not like everything was grim and awful for everyone all the time, any more or less than anywhere else during this 500 year period, basically. Like there was some places um, where maybe women had more, were allowed to like walk around um, and there are other places where women also couldn't. So it's just, again, I really don't want to come across at all as being like specifically critical of this culture because it's the first like Asian culture 
we've talked about on this podcast, but also this is like a real shitty time to be a woman and a poor person because this dynasty, this era lasted until like basically 1900. So a lot of what is culturally done in Korea now derives from this time period. So Korean etiquette, cultural norms, societal attitudes towards current issues, even the modern Korean language and its dialects stem from the traditional thought pattern that originated from the Joseon dynasty. Like that's where the um, the alphabet that's used now was first invented. The hangbok, the, the traditional dress, that was how people dressed during the Joseon dynasty. So this is where a lot of what I have seen as sort of like the traditions of Korea are from this era. And good things that happened. So there was a golden age of development. Uh, the Joseon dynasty built fortresses, trading harbors, and palaces. Many Korean inventions come from this period, including the first sundial in Asia and the world's first water-powered clock. Um, the metal printing press supplanted the woodblock printing press in China, and that was one that was invented in Korea. And now we're just going to take a break for a word from our sponsors. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. So the thing is, I have allergies. My nose gets stuffy. I get sort of sinus congestion, and it just really can sometimes get in the way of doing things I really want to be doing, like recording this podcast, for instance. But you might have noticed that when you're listening to this podcast, you never hear me sounding like a duck or uh, with a runny nose. I'm never wiping my nose or stuff on the microphone. And that's because luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. So I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies, and the thing is, when I'm using it, you wouldn't even know that I have allergies. My voice sounds so crystal clear when I'm recording and when you're listening to me right now. But also when I'm not doing podcasts, when I'm doing other life-related things, like just going about my day-to-day -day life, like sitting on the bus or going to work or whatever, going to the movie theaters. I don't have to worry about like, do I have tissues with me? Do I have a handkerchief? Is this noise bothering everybody? Am I being gross? Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. And we're back. So during this 
500-year period. Agriculture came to take precedence over commerce, which is part of why they had less to do with international trade and stuff, because they were more focusing on growing their own crops for themselves. By the mid-19th century, Chosun Dynasty was in jeopardy. Traditional customs were losing their significance, so they'd always been sort of bordered by Japan and China, and now like Russia was becoming more powerful. The United States existed, so and Chosun was like right in between all these kind of like really powerful places who were pressuring for an open-door policy. They wanted to have more to do with Chosun, um, to like do more westernized stuff is the way that it's often phrased. So the possibilities of invasion, and it's not like they were like politely asking for this, like there was the possibility of invasion from all corners added to tension among the Chosun dynasty, like the people, the ruling people. So in 1864, the king was King Chuljong, and he died aged 32 without any heirs. And he had also been one, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, who is like the previous king died and then he was adopted to be the new king. Anyway, so he died without any heirs. He also died under mysterious circumstances. Although he was frequently ill, he may have been poisoned because that's a thing that happened to people. Maybe the illness was also poisoning. And if he was poisoned, it was probably by the Andong Kim clan, which is one of the very powerful families. So it's like, again, I keep thinking, comparing it to like Tudor England, which is like an era that I just happen to know better. So it's like, you know, there's this, the the Howards and the Seymours and the Boleyns. It's like all these kind of um, noble families were always sort of trying to get in good with the king. So King Choljung's wife had been from the Andong Kim clan. So I don't know if that's... Anyway, every, like any dynasty, it's a Game of Thrones situation. And then it came down to after he died, like there's a scramble right away. Who was going to name his successor? Would it be his widow, who was from the Andong Kim clan, or was it going to be his mother, who was not? So another family, the like who didn't want the Andong Kims to get to choose the new leader. They looked around and they settled on a distant relative of the king, I think, from the Pungyang Zhou clan, which was the only other family as powerful as the Andong Kims and who could maybe challenge them for power. This relative they'd found was a man named Yi Haiyun, but he wasn't eligible to be king himself because he was a man. And the way it worked with like adopting a new person to be king was that if the king died without children, you couldn't replace him with someone who is like the same age-ish. Like if he was a man, an adult man, you couldn't choose another adult man. Like the, the new king had to be from the next generation after the most recent incumbent of the throne. And Yi Haiyung was of the same generation as the king. He had a son though. Um, his 12-year-old son was Yi Myongbok. So it's kind of like, okay, well, what if we make him the new king? Um, so again, he's 12 years old and he would not be able to rule in his own name until he came of age, which effectively meant that Yi Haiyung would be in charge because he would be the father of the king who was a little boy. Um, the Punyang Zhou clan knew that they could easily influence the father to like further what they wanted and that he would be the regent for the son. So acting alongside the queen mother who had chosen him or his son to be the new king. 
And so it was, it all happened really quickly, which is part of why I feel like maybe this was poisoning because there was some like planning ahead happened. So as soon as news of Chul, Chul Jong's death reached Yi Haiyung through his intricate network of spies, so like he already had an intricate network of spies in the palace, he um, and the Punyang Zhou clan took the hereditary royal seal, so like an object. This is like how in the Jane Grey story where she put the crown on her head and like that was treason. It's like the object itself has so much power. So in order for a legitimate reign to take place, you had to have this royal seal. And he got it. So this uh, gave the queen mother absolute power to select the successor to the throne. And he like he found out right away that the king had died. He got the royal seal. So by the time that the Andong Kim clan found out that the king had even died, he already had the seal. In the autumn of 1864, Yi Myung-bak was crowned as king. He got a new king name, which is King Gojong of Joseon. His father was titled the uh, term that means Grand Internal Prince. So his title was Regent Hongsun Daewangun. And this is the title Daewangun is usually given to the father of the king. And he's going to be an incredibly important, both of these are going to be really important characters in this story. So King Gojong, that's the little boy king. His dad, Daewangun, like we're going to call him that because that is how he is most often referred to in the sources I was looking at. So the dad, Daewangun, was very strongly Confucian and he was a capable and calculating leader in the early years of Gojong's reign. He... Um, abolished the old government institutions that had become corrupt under the rule of various clans, revised the law codes along with household laws of the royal court and the rules of court ritual, and heavily reformed the military techniques of the royal armies. Within a few short years, he was able to secure complete control of the court, and eventually he received the submission of the Punyang Zhou's, who were the people who like put him there, but then he kind of became more powerful than them. And he also disposed of the last of the Andong Kims. Um, he believed that their corruption was responsible for how Joseon Kingdom had declined in the 19th century. So that'll happen in two years. And then the regency was ended because Gojong became fully the king because he was, I guess, 14. But he was truly a puppet. And Daewangun kept being in charge. Everyone knew he was in charge. Gojong was just kind of like, oh, yeah, he's like, quote unquote, the king. But like, I think they kept him less educated as well just to make him be less influential so he wouldn't like have his own ideas so Daewangun was just like in charge of everything effectively illegally staying on as the regent even though his son was literally the king at this point a wife was chosen for him by his father and that is the main character of this whole thing so let's learn about her now that is queen min so this woman who was a girl when she was chosen to be his wife, was known as Lady Min, and we don't know her first name because of the patriarchal culture. <laughs> Some records suggest her name may have been Ja Young. We're going to refer to her as Queen Min, or just Min, because that's how she's most often referred to in the historical writings I've been looking at. So, Min, um, which is her family name. Like, she's from the Min clan. Like, that, we don't know her first name. But her last, it's like if I was just foster. But anyway, all we know to call her is Min. So it's kind of like Saida Alhura in that episode where like we only know her title. But this is what everyone called her. So I'm going to call her that too. 
was the daughter of Min Chirok, a former past prime minister of the Chosan Kingdom. She was highly intelligent and read Chinese classics during her youth. I don't know if this is like an exception to the whole like girls not allowed to read thing or just her father thought it was okay. When she was around eight years old, her father died. Her mother might have also at that time. So she was from this noble family, but it was not a super wealthy branch of the family. And so she grew up not super rich. And at age 15, her name was brought forward as a potential bride for the young king who was the same age. They were more or less the same age. And her name was brought up probably because Dawangun's wife was from the Min family as well. In fact, Min, I believe, was Dawangun's wife's second cousin. The Min family was a noble clan boasting many high-positioned bureaucrats in its past, as well as past princess consorts, as well as two queen consorts. And so what seemed appealing about Min to Dewangun was um, she was an orphan, um, she was poor, like, so she wouldn't have, he was like, okay, she wouldn't have parents who would meddle around, like, she's an orphan that's kind of ideal, so we can just, like, put her in place as kind of just like a baby maker for us to have princes. So she just seemed like she was not going to be a threat. It's reminding me of like when um, Caroline of Brunswick was chosen for George IV or when Diana Spencer was chosen for King Charles. Um, they just wanted somebody who seemed kind of like meek and quiet and like would just kind of look pretty and not really challenge them. And, and like in those instances, that is not what happened. So Dewangun was told Min was orphaned, beautiful, with a healthy body and an ordinary level of education. She had no close relatives to harbor political ambitions, but came from a noble lineage. So like she seemed like a great choice. So she was brought in for a meeting with him. Clearly he was impressed and the marriage was agreed upon. So like the marriage happened like weeks after this meeting. They're just like, let's do it. So um, there might have been signs in that meeting of what was to come. As per one source, the Dewangun did not realize her tiger-like spirit and politically ambitious nature. But another source suggests that he felt slightly disturbed by her presence, like that he could sense that she was a woman of great determination and poise. So I don't know, like it's tempting to think back like, ooh, like what would this meeting have been? Because they're going to become like spoiler arch nemeses of each other. But at this point, he was just like, she seems pretty sure this is fine. So she had just turned 16 and she married the 15-year-old king and she was invested as queen consort of Chosan. At the marriage ceremony itself, the wig typically worn by brides at royal weddings was so heavy and she was so small and 16 that a tall court lady was specially assigned to support it from the back, the wig. Now, it would not have come to a surprise to anybody that Gojong already had a favored concubine because that's just how things worked and so nobody would have been surprised by this, like not men, not anybody. So his favorite, although I feel like for a 15-year-old to have a favorite concubine is like quite a thing. So his favorite concubine at this point was named Yi Guiyin. Guiyin is the first junior rank of concubine. And on the day of their marriage ceremony, Gojong did not go to Queen Mid's quarters to like consummate the marriage. Instead, he went to Yi Guiyin's quarters. So that potentially is not a good sign that this is going to be a successful marriage. Um, one thing I read suggested she might have suggested herself that he go and do that and not come to be with her. So who knows how that actually happened. And just in terms of concubines, since we're on the topic, so it was of the utmost importance for 
to have a son, to be the heir, as we've talked about a lot. Um, if the official wife wasn't able to have a son, then the son of one of the concubines would become the heir. So this was kind of like plan B for them. Yeah, so it seems like these two were incompatible, uh, just like personality-wise. She preferred to stay in her chamber studying while he enjoyed spending his days and nights drinking and attending banquets and royal parties. Uh, Min was genuinely interested um, in affairs of the state. And so she she just moved there and she was just like, oh my God, there's so many books. It's like vibes of like Belle when she goes to Beast's castle. She's just like, I can learn so much stuff from all these books. So she immersed herself in reading books about philosophy, history, and science. These were books that were normally reserved for Yangban men, like the aristocratic men. Allegedly, she once told a friend about her husband, he disgusts me. What was men like? So, years later, a woman named Louise Jordan Milne described her like this in her book, Quaint Korea. The queen is pale and delicate looking. She has a remarkable forehead, low but strong, and a mouth charming in its coloring, in its outlines, in its femininity, in the pearls it discloses, and sweet with the music that slips through it when she speaks. She dresses plainly as a rule and in dark but rich materials. In this, she resembles the highborn matrons of Japan, and in cut, her garments are more Japanese than those of other Korean women. She wears her hair parted in the middle and runs softly into a simple knot or coil of braid. She wears diamonds most often, not many, but of much price. They are her favorite gems. An American woman named Lillian Underwood, who would later be a close friend of Min's and was appointed as her doctor because she had to have a lady doctor, also later wrote this. I wish I could give the public a true picture of the queen as she appeared at her best, but this would be impossible even had she permitted a photograph to be taken. For her charming play of expression while in conversation, the character and intellect which were then revealed were only half seen when the face was in repose. Slightly pale and quite thin, with somewhat sharp features and brilliant piercing eyes, she did not strike me at first sight as being beautiful, but no one could help reading force, intellect, and strength of character in that face. So... Yeah, as she settled into her new role as queen, people around her began noticing these things that these women were writing. She had a more assertive and ambitious personality than the previous queens had. She did not participate again in these lavish parties that her husband enjoyed. She rarely commissioned extravagant fashions from the royal ateliers and almost never hosted afternoon tea parties with powerful aristocratic ladies unless politics required her to do so. She was expected to act as an icon for Korea's high society, but she would rather just like read books. Like this is like Jane Grey vibes, Cece vibes, Christine of Sweden vibes. She's just like reading books, which everybody found really strange and concerning. Like she read books generally reserved for men and just kept furthering her own education. So I guess it's like she had been educated quote, an ordinary amount, I think I said earlier, but she's just like really excited to learn more stuff. Happy to have these books. Yeah, time passed. Like she got married when she was 16. By the time she was 20, she had begun to wander outside her apartments at the palace and to play an active part in politics in spite of Daewangun and various high officials who viewed her as becoming meddlesome. She also had not had a child until around this point. So when she was 20, she had a son, but the son died shortly after being born. Daewangun publicly accused her of being unable to bear a healthy male child. Remember, that's one of the like seven 
things that like wives can't do. But she suspected that he um, had maybe killed the the child on purpose through giving her a maybe poison ginseng treatment. So like he publicly accused her of being able to bear a healthy male child. It sounds like she publicly accused him of poisoning the baby. So now kind of everyone knew that they were feuding. And the feud was largely for control over the king, who is again not Daewangun, it was Gojong, means husband. And just kind of like who was he gonna listen to more? So Gojong did conceive a son through his favorite concubine, Yi Guiyin, um, and she gave birth to Prince Wanhua, who was given the title of Crown Prince by Daewangun. He was overwhelmed with joy at this firstborn grandchild, and this made him acknowledge Min even less, but little did he know. Min had secretly begun to form a powerful faction against him. With the backing of high officials, scholars, and members of her clan, remember the Min clan, she sought to remove him from power. So the queen consorts, so her older brother, Min had an older brother who isn't adopted. There's just a lot of adoption. I don't know. It's, anyway, she had an adopted older brother, Min Seung-ho was in on the scheme, as well as court scholar Cho Ik-hyun. They devised a formal impeachment of Daewangun to be presented to the Royal Council of Administration. And their argument, which was like a very sound argument, was like, Gojong is 22. Like, he should be able to rule in his own right because, like, and he should have been doing that since he was 16 or something. Like, Daewangun is overreaching. Anyway, I love that she's been reading books and maybe from those books, that's where she got the idea or she like found the loophole of like, ooh, this is what we can do. So, in 1873, with the approval of Gojong and the Royal Council, like this all happened and Gojong was behind it. So, the Daewangun was forced to retire to his estate at Yangju. Min also at the same time banished Yi Guiyin, the concubine, along with her son to a village outside the capital and stripped her and the son of royal titles. The following year, Min gave birth to a son, which assured her place as queen consort. So, in terms of children, just so she's, what, 21? And by now she had uh, lost one daughter and four sons in infancy. And she only had one surviving child, Sunjong. Sunjong was frequently ill, which led her to be anxious that a concubine might have a son that would replace her son. So she went, after, she went for help to shamans and um, she gave monks beneficial positions to ask for their blessing. And she and Sunjong apparently remained very close. But with these expulsions... Like having gotten rid of Daewangun, having gotten rid of Yi Guiyin, Min had gained complete control over her court. We love to see it. So she was now fully queen consort. She was ruling alongside her husband, like, but more so she was recognized as being more politically active than Gojong. Like, so like Daewangun was gone and now she's fully in charge. So she became in many ways the de facto leader of Joseon. She she showed her political skill, placing her relatives in top government roles and maneuvered among the noble factions to consolidate her power. And that, I think, that's where we're going to end part one because it's like running on a high, running with this exciting thing. So yeah, we're going to pick up the story of Queen Min next week with more information. So a couple reminders as per ever. 
So if you go to vulgarhistory.com, there's a form or there's like a button there or if you want to give me feedback. Oh my God, <laughs> how's my Korean pronunciation? Am I representing this culture okay? I have, I'm worried, um, but I, I hope I'm telling the story okay. And also just give me any other feedback or ideas or suggestions you have about people you want to hear covered on the podcast. If you want to buy uh, some books and have a little money to support me, for instance, the books written by June Her. I'll put all those links in the show notes. But if you go to bookshop.org slash shop slash vulgar history, and if you do your book shopping from there, then a little bit of money goes to help support this podcast. You can also support the podcast by going to vulgarhistory.store, um, vulgarhistory.store. You can use code TITSOUT for free US shipping or TITSOUT10 for 10% off. I've been adding stuff there, not for every single person I've talked about, but for most of them, frankly, there's like various Hortense Mancini, um, Mazarinette stuff. There's the horse girl energy design in honor of Cece. I'll try to hopefully figure out something out for Min as well. Yeah. And then you can also join the Patreon. So patreon.com slash Ann Foster Writer. That's where when you join for at least a dollar a month, then you get early access to all the episodes of Vulgar History ad-free um, because you've probably noticed these last couple episodes like we have ads now because we're hitting the big time but if you prefer an ad-free experience you can get that patreon.com slash writer if you pledge five dollars or more a month on there as well you can also get access to the bonus series of vulgar piece theater where i do costume drama reviews with allison epstein and lana Witt johnson as well as soaps asshole where i talk about famous horrible men from history and you can also support the podcast um, in a non-financial manner by listening and telling your friends that you like it. And also by, um, you can rate the podcast wherever you're listening. On Spotify, there's a place where you can put the five-star review. We've recently-ish got to 2,000 ratings, which is super exciting and kind of minorly overwhelming. But I feel like we're at 2,000. Let's get to 3,000. Let's get, let's get those ratings going. If you're listening on another app, like on um, Apple Podcasts, you can rate and or review. These are things you can do that just like make me happy and also help support the show. So anyway, yeah, we're on Instagram at Vulgar History Pod. We're on Twitter at Vulgar History. And next week, we're going to pick right up from where we left off, rather, um, and learn more about Queen Min. If you want to watch um, a movie about her, uh, the movie I watched is called The Sword with No Name. And in that movie, actually, they do make it canon in the movie that her name is Jai Young, and she kind of has this sexy bodyguard who is there helping her out. But you know what? In real life, Min did all this without presumably a sexy bodyguard, and I respect her so much for that. Keep your pants on. Keep your tits out. Talk to you all next week. Vulgar History is hosted, written, and researched by Anne Foster and edited by Christina Lumaki. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.